but in this sermon series, uh, Pillars of the Local Church, um, I, I really love uh, what Matt and Jacob came up with for this series because um, it's got so much, it's very rich both practically and doctrinally. And so we're hitting a lot of practical stuff. What do we do as the church? But we're also hitting a lot of doctrinal stuff of why we do what we do as the church. And so um, that's going to kind of be where we are this morning. Why do we do what we do? Why are we what we are? Um, and so this morning we're going to be looking at uh, a commitment to the triune God. And so I don't know if you noticed, but we just sang uh, two songs uh, that talk about the Trinity, and so uh, that was on purpose. Um, yeah, so uh, we're going to be talking about a commitment to the triune God this morning. So uh, we're gonna, I'm going to go ahead and read um, our first main text. We're going to have two. The second one I'll read in the middle, and it's just one verse. So, uh, But we're going to be start off in John 16 in the middle of it, and then we're going to skip ahead to the beginning of John 17. So we'll start... In John 16, chapter 13, and if you don't have uh, your Bible or um, the Bible on your phone or whatever, it will have it up on the screen. So starting in verse 13 of John 16, it says, When the Spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare, declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from me what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the Father has is mine. That is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. And then go ahead and skip ahead to the beginning of chapter 17, verse 1. It says, Jesus spoke these things, looked up to heaven, and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son so that the Son may glorify you, since you gave him authority over all flesh so that he may give eternal life to everyone you have given him. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. I have glorified you on the earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, glorify me in your presence with that glory I had with you before the world existed. Let's pray real quick. Father, we just pray that this morning... um, God, you would be with us, that you would speak to us, that you would uh, just reveal yourself, the the true nature of who you are, your your unity um, and diversity in the Godhead, God. And we just uh, thank you for bringing us together this morning um, as your church to hear from you and to learn and grow together. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Before I jump in, I did want to say that I remembered what the other announcement was, and it I couldn't think of it because it's not really an announcement. It's just Happy Father's Day, (laughs) on the one hand, uh, to all the fathers. Um, uh, So it's Father's Day. It's also Juneteenth, so Happy Juneteenth to everyone. Uh, I think this is the this is is the second year that it's now a federal holiday. I think so. That's exciting. So Happy Father's Day and Happy Juneteenth this morning. Um, But. Uh, on Father's Day, we will talk about God the Father, so uh, that worked out pretty well. Um, but let's start off by just asking the question, what is the Trinity? Um, the Trinity is really one of the greatest mysteries of the Christian faith. Um, and at the same time, it's one of the most important doctrines of the Christian faith. Um, it's an essential doctrine. Uh, that just means that if uh, if you want to say that you're an orthodox Christianity or what Christianity over the course of Christian history has said is the doctrine we believe in, then you believe in a triune God. Um, if you don't, then you're kind of outside of orthodoxy. You're outside of the orthodox Christian faith. Um, so it is a great mystery, but it's also very important. Um, it's such a mystery that it calls John Wesley, um, the, the hymn writer, theologian, preacher, uh, he said this about it. He said, bring me a worm that can comprehend a man, and then I will show you a man that can comprehend the triune God. Um, I even like um, what the Catechism of the Catholic Church uh, says about it. Um, it says, the mystery of the most holy trinity is the central mystery of Christian faith and life. It is the mystery of God in himself. 
It is therefore the source of all other mysteries of the faith, the light that enlightens them. It is the most fundamental and essential teaching in the hierarchy of truths of the faith. I, I think that's true. Um, you know, I, we have a lot of disagreements doctrinally with the Catholic Church, but I, I love what they say right there in their catechism about um, the Trinity. Um, but lucky for us this morning, um, whereas uh, man has never become a worm, um, God has become a man. Uh, and so that gives us hope this morning that while the, the, tri, the Trinity, the triune God, will probably remain a mystery for as long as we live, we can know something about what it, who he is as a triune God and what it means for us. So what is the doctrine of the Trinity? Uh, this is our first main point, and I'm, I'm just going to state as simply as possible what the triune God is. There is one God in essence and being who exists as three persons. Sounds simple until you think about it for like more than two seconds, right? Um, there is one God in essence and being who exists as three persons. So we're going to kind of talk about some things that this doesn't mean and then kind of try to fill in the blanks for what, you know, some things that it does mean. And uh, when we when we finish this section, you'll you'll probably be like, okay, it's not these things. It's sort of these things, and I still don't really understand it. And that's okay. Uh, that's just a part of this doctrine. It is a mystery. Um, but first, there's a few ideas that we're gonna uh, that we want to avoid. Um, there's been over the centuries many many uh, analogies given for the Trinity. Just people trying to explain um, with you know physical things what the spiritual God is, um, and really like I, th- I guess they're sort of helpful to get you started, but really, like, if you take them to their end, um, then a lot of them are actually not helpful at all because they they lead you down a road that kind of leads to heretical thinking about what the triune God is. So let's look at a few of these. One, um, one sorry, my mouth is very dry already. Uh, one uh, heresy that we want to avoid about the Trinity is called uh, modalism. Modalism is essentially just that the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are not distinct persons, but they're just kind of roles or modes or uh, forms that God takes, if that makes sense. Um, so whereas the, the doctrine that we read at the beginning is God is one God in essence, but three in person, modalism kind of says, well, he's not really three persons. He's really just one God, but he does these three different roles. Um, so you may have heard something like, um, as an analogy, the water. You know, water, it's all H2O, but it can exist as ice and liquid and vapor. And that's kind of like what the Trinity is. Well, no, that's kind of modalism. That's kind of saying it's it's really all the same thing, but it does these different roles. And that's not what the Trinity is. Or you may have heard um, it's like a man who's um, he's the same person, but he's a brother and a father and a son all at the same time. And it's like, no, not really. It's kind of that's he's the same person. He's only one person, and he does he has these different roles that he plays in his life. And that's not what the Trinity is. That's not what we want to think. That's not the way we want to think. Another um, another heresy that goes all the way back to um, some of the first uh, um, meetings of where doctrine was really uh, established of the Christian church in the first few centuries um, is called Arianism. Arianism is named after... Um, I'm blanking on his name, Arius, Ari, huh? Yeah, I was right, Arius. Um, it, it, he, uh, he kind of said that essentially um, God, um, the, the Son and the Spirit are begotten of God. They are uh, the Father. So there's the Father who is God, and then the Holy Spirit and um and Jesus, or the Son, are begotten of him. They're not, they haven't necessarily eternally existed with him. Um, and this is, so this is a heresy that has all kinds of nuances. 
different ways that people have thought of it over the years. So one way is that they haven't always eternally existed with God. They were begotten at some point. Another one is that they are eternally begotten, but they are not as important as the Father because they come from the Father. So that's another way to think about it. Um, uh, there's related ones like subordinationism, where the Son and the Spirit are subordinated to the Father. He's actually the one in charge, and they are subordinated to him, which would make them lesser than the Father and not fully divine, like the doctrine of the Trinity says. Um, another one is adoptionism, where um, Jesus wasn't actually divine until his baptism, and then God made him divine at that point. So there's all kinds of nuances um, kind of under the big heading that Arianism took down. And so, you know, you may have heard, so one maybe popular analogy from this is like, it's like the sun. You know, you have the sun, and then you have the the heat and the light that come from the sun, right? Um, and so that that's an analogy that some people have used for the Trinity, but that would be a form of Arianism. It's saying that really there's God, the Father, and these other beings are kind of come out of him. And that's not really what the Trinity wants to say, the doctrine of the Trinity. So how should we think of the Trinity? Um, All these physical analogies kind of fall short in some way or another. And so really, like, my advice is to generally just try to avoid using analogies um, to understand the Trinity, because most of them don't work. I'll give you two that I do think come the closest. One of them is actually a physical one, and then one of them is more a a psychological kind of reality. Um, One is uh, light. If you ask a scientist, what is light? He'll say, well, it's a wave and it's energy particles. And it shouldn't be able to be those two things uh, at once, but it is, and we don't really understand why. And so I think that comes close because in the world of science, it is still a mystery. It's still a mystery as to how light can be both a wave and particles of energy. They don't really understand it. They understand a lot about what it means for the universe and how it, how it acts in the universe, but they don't really understand its essence um, and that it can be, that it is both at the same time a wave and energy particle. And so that comes close to kind of an analogy for what how we think about the Trinity. We, we know that God is one in essence, but he also is fully three persons. Um, and it's kind of a mystery, right? Uh, another one is um, kind of human psychology. So the, the essence of who we are as humans, which makes sense because we are made in the image of God. So the way that we work and behave as humans probably reflects something about who God is. Um, So if you think about um, when you're thinking about something, you are are the subject of that thought. You're where the thought comes from. And then there's an object of that thought. Well, sometimes we think about ourselves, right? So at that point, we're both the subject and the object of our thoughts, And then sometimes we think about the thoughts we have about ourselves. (laughs) And at that point, we're the subject of our thoughts, where the thoughts come from. We're the object of our thoughts, where what we're thinking about. And then when we start thinking about our thoughts about ourselves, that brings in a whole nother element. And so there's there's this weird, um, yeah, there's this just weird mystery about human consciousness that sort of lines up with that mystery of who the Trinity is, right? Um, we, you know, and then when you bring in um, our interactions with other people, it makes it even more complicated. Like, we have a consciousness and they have a consciousness and we relate to one another. And then you bring marriage in and it makes it even more complicated, you know. God says that the two become one flesh. Well, what does that mean? That must mean, that must have something to do with relating to our image bearing of the Trinity, right? Um, And so that's kind of like, those are two things where I'm kind of like, okay, if you kind of talk about these alongside the Trinity, you can kind of, it kind of helps you think about it in a better light than most other analogies do. 
Um, so if you have to use analogies, those are the kinds of thing. Those are the kinds of roads I would go down. Um, but in general, um, maybe it's just best to leave the mystery of it sort of a mystery. Um, so let's try to remember this. I, I have some graphics that I'm going to put up in a minute. I meant to put up a graphic for this point too. Um, I, maybe I'll post it in the Facebook group um, later today or later this week or something. Um, uh, it's just a graphic that basically puts in view what I'm about to say. But think about it this. The Father is not the Son or the Holy Spirit. The Son is not the Holy Spirit or the Father. The Holy Spirit is not the Father or the Son, but all three are God. That's essentially what the Trinity is. The Father is God, the Son is God, and the Spirit is God. They are all fully God, but they are three distinct persons. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. That means when we talk about God, we, we, want to be, we want to kind of have in mind the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, unless we're talking about a specific one, right? When you talk about God, that's what you're talking about. You're talking about all three persons of the Trinity. You're talking about who God is in full. Um, I like what John Calvin says in his Institutes of the Christian Faith. Um, he reminds us that if we think about God without thinking about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, or any particular one, then, and this is a quote, only the bare and empty name of God flits about in our brains to the exclusion of the true God. So this is important because we want to have a relationship with God. And so when we relate to God, we want to relate to him as he is, right? And so if you just kind of have this like big and personal, weird spiritual being in mind, then you're really kind of like out of step with the true God. So when we think about God and pray to God um, and try to learn about God, we want to think about him as the three persons that he is, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Um, And that will actually help practically us relate to God and know him. Um, So I have four graphics. So this is going to help us think about um, what we're going to do this one last very, like, doctrinal uh, seminary kind of thinking for a second, and then we'll jump into a lot more practical stuff. Um, So um, go ahead and put up the first graphic. These are going to help us think about three ways that are not a good way to think about how the Father, Son, and the Spirit work together as God. And then we're going to look at one that is more helpful, but a little bit more Needs a little bit more explanation. So this first one, um, these are, and by the way, these are from Wayne Grudem's big, thick, systematic theology book, in case you were wondering. Um, I just kind of scanned these. God's being is not divided into three equal parts belonging to the three members of the Trinity. So as you can see in this graphic, you have the circle, which is God, and he's divided into three parts. That's not what the Trinity is. It's not the Father is one-third of God, the Spirit is one-third, and the Son is one-third. That's not what the, the doctrine of the Trinity is. So this is not a good way to think about it. Go to the next one. The persons of the Trinity are not just three different ways of looking at the one being of God. So in this graphic, you can see it's the arrows are to represent how we're looking at God. So it's not that just if you look at God in this way, he's the Father. And if you look at God in this way, he's the Son. Um, you know, that kind of goes back to the heresy of modalism, right? Um, It's not just that God behaves in these different ways, and when he behaves in that way and you see him behave in that way, well, then that's the Father. It's not really that. Um, So it's not just different ways of seeing God. Uh, Go to the next one. And uh, the three uh, personal distinctions in the Trinity are not something added on to God's real being. So it's not that, like, there's God, and then you have these things that, you know, help us to relate to him added on um, to that, that divine essence or that divine being. That's not a good way either. Go ahead and go to the last one. There are three distinct persons, and the being of each person is equal to the whole being of God. That's where the mystery, that's where you, like, we, we finally come to the end of this kind of part, and we're like, yeah, still, I just don't, I don't know. Like, I, it makes sense, but it doesn't make sense, right? Um, so 
here's how this graphic is going to help us. The circle is the whole being of God. This is where it gets a little complicated. The middle things are not not divisions. The, the, these middle lines are, you got to think about these middle lines in two ways. So they're not divisions. You can see that they're dotted lines. So that doesn't cut the father off from the whole essence of God or the son off from the whole essence of God, right? So that's that's one thing that these little dotted lines mean. It means that the father, while he is distinct from the other persons of the Trinity, he is still fully God and the same for the other two, right? The other way that you got to think about these lines is these are kind of relational lines. So relational lines within the, the Godhead. Um, the father is is distinct from the son, but he also relates to the son and the Holy Spirit and so on with the other three. So it's both like it's dividing them, but not dividing them. <laughs> and it's you know, it's showing the relationship between the three all at the same time. The Trinity is a paradox of the faith. A paradox is something that seems like it doesn't make sense, but in actuality does. And it's a paradox, it's a mystery, but it does mean something for us. So let's look uh, back to what Jesus had said in those passages in John. I wanted to look at what Jesus himself was saying about the Trinity because who better to explain something about the Trinity to us than one of the members of the Trinity, right? Um, so Jesus, in these three parts that we looked at, both in uh, chapter 16 and 17, in chapter 16, he's talking to his disciples about the Spirit, He's talking about the Holy Spirit. And then you go to chapter 17, and it's uh, it's this long prayer of Jesus. I would actually encourage you, uh, maybe this afternoon or tomorrow for your devotion, read all of uh, chapter 17, because uh, it's a beautiful prayer um, that Jesus prays. He starts off in these first five verses that we read, praying to the Father, um, asking him to, to glorify him as he has before the world existed. You know, that's crazy. And then also... Um, he goes on to pray for his disciples and for all those who would become disciples, which is us, right? And so it's this be- long, beautiful prayer uh, that Jesus prays towards the end of his life. Uh, so I'd encourage you to go, just go home and read that later because it's uh, really beautiful. But the beginning of that, you know, he's, it shows his relationship with the Father. So between those two little sections, we see the Spirit, the Son, and the Father all kind of having this relationship with each other. And this, at the center of that, what he talks about um, between all of them is glorifying one another. The Holy Spirit glorifies him. He glorifies the Spirit. The Father is going to glorify the Son as he has since before the, anything existed. And the Son glorifies the Father with how he's lived his life. And it's this all mixed in weird, not weird, but like hard to understand how they're, they all are glorifying each other. What does this mean? It means that they, each person of the Trinity, all three persons, mutually adore, magnify, and delight in one another. And this is, this is where I really want us to hone in. What this essentially means is that love is built into the fabric of who God is. You think about the verse that says, God is love. It's not just saying, you know, God is the one that defines love or God is the one that shows us what love is. No, God is love. It's built into the fabric of who he is. There's this mutual adoration and magnification and glorifying of each person of the Trinity for the other. Um, There's this relational aspect built into who God is. Think about it. If, If you had a God who is just one being one person, who does he have to love before he creates? Love needs an object, right? There's no way to love. There's no way to give yourself to another, to act in the way that we, you know, we kind of um, respect another people when they show love, right? So, but the Christian faith says that God is three persons and that these three persons have eternally loved each other. 
Isn't that crazy? Um, so what this means is that from eternity past, which we say eternity past, but really eternity doesn't mean just past. It it's, exists outside of time, right? From eternity, love has been the ultimate reality, which might sound just kind of fluffy, but if you think about it, it's, it's love instead of power. It's love instead of success. It's love instead of accomplishment. Love is the most important reality. Love is at the center of all things, not power, right? Because before anything existed, before God exerted his power in creation, there was love. The love came, the power came out of the love, not the other way around, right? This is unique to Christianity. If you think back to um, history classes where you talk about ancient religions, the one thing common in all ancient religions except for the Judeo-Christian faith is that the universe was made out of some personal conflict, right? There's some personal conflict between these kind of universal beings or gods or however they were thinking about them. There was some conflict, and boom, the universe is made out of that conflict. If you think about modern thought, right, that everything is just the product of chance, um, survival of the fittest, that sort of thought, uh, the universe comes from impersonal conflict, it still comes out of some power struggle, some conflict that the universe has created. In Christianity, the universe flows out of an eternal, personal love. Which of these sounds like it lines up with our deepest intuitions? So I want to ask you this morning, what is your life built around? Is your life built around becoming more successful? Is it built around exerting your power? Is it built around making yourself great? Or is it built around what the universe was created from? Love. Think about it in this way. How many times have you heard about stories of people on their deathbed, you know, thinking back um, about their life? Or maybe perhaps someone who has just lost someone thinking back on their relationship. How many times do you hear someone like that say, I wish I would have spent more time at the office. I could have got so much more stuff done. No, (laughs) they say, man, if I could only have another moment with my family, you know, if I could have only spent more time with my parents, with my kids, with my spouse, with my friends, you know, then life would have been more fulfilling. That's at the end of our lives. That's what our deepest intuitions tell us. It's not, I wish I would have gained more power or I wish I would have been more successful. No, it's, I wish I would have loved more. And so, when we think about it in this way, um, you've got to realize when we seek things other than love at the center of our life, then we are pushing against the ultimate reality of existence. You're pushing against reality in itself, which flows from God, who is love. So we, like our Trinitarian God, must give ourselves to him and give ourselves to others in love to find true happiness. When Jesus said, um, you know, Paul recalling something that Jesus said, said, he said that it is more blessed to give than to receive. What is Jesus saying? Is he just giving some like sweet moral lesson? Like, oh, you know, you got to share. No, like Jesus is saying it's more blessed. It's more blessed. And when he uses that word, it's not just like, you know, you'll be blessed when you do this. He's saying, he's using a word that means like happiness with a capital H. It means like meaning, where meaning and purpose and true happiness is found. He's essentially saying, 
when you give yourself, that's when you line up with true meaning and purpose and will find true happiness than if you're just receiving and taking. It's more blessed to give than receive. It's not just some sweet moral lesson. Jesus is giving us a truth about the reality of existence. And so, at the same time, we got to be careful that we don't love God and others for happiness. You seek first that, and then these other things will be added to you, right? If you're seeking God, if you're trying to love God and love others to be happy, then you're still just, it's just still self-fulfillment, right? Um, and so it's, it's about loving others, truly loving God and loving others, giving yourself, sacrificing your own desires for those of others. That's what love is. And that's what the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have been doing for eternity. They've been giving themselves to one another. So here's our application, our first application from this doctrine of the Trinity. Build your life around ultimate reality, which is love and self-giving. Build your life around that as opposed to all the other things people in the world tell you you should build your life around. Because if you build your life around those things, you are literally pushing against the essence of not just who you are, but what the universe was made to be, (laughs) right? So now that we've looked at what the Trinity is, what its essential message is to us, let's now like let's now look at each individual member of the Trinity uh, and what it means for us as a church. Uh, so first, we're going to read um, our second main passage, which is Second Corinthians thirteen thirteen. In some translations, um, verses twelve and thirteen. I'm using the the Christian Standard Bible for this one. You can go ahead and put that verse up. Um, uh, some some translations break these two verses into three verses. So in some tra- your translation, it might be 2 Corinthians 13, 14. Um, it's the same either way, um, just some translations. I don't know why. Uh, I don't know why some people are like, we're going to do it different. It's like, just keep them all the same verses. Um, but, so, I'm, but in mine, it's 2 Corinthians 13, 13. Uh, and it says this, The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is the very last, very last thing Paul says at the end of his letter to the second Corinthians. It's kind of his benediction. Uh, It's kind of like how we say at the end of every week, you've been called, you've been equipped, you've been sent. That's what Paul's doing here at the end of his letter. He's giving a benediction and he invokes the three persons of the Trinity. And I think it's really cool that he does this. And so what we're going to do is look at each of these little parts of his benediction um, and break down what it means for us. So first we're going to look at the love of the Father. So this is what we're going to look at, the love of the Father, the grace of Jesus, the grace of the Son, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. So that's what we're going to look at for this next uh, section. So first, the love of the Father. Uh, perhaps one of the most profound things about God is not some abstract or philosophical quality, um, but something very personal. He is a father. And so that's our main, our, our second main point this morning. God is a loving father. Simple, right? And it is. It is simple. But it's profound because it means that God as father is personal. And it means, this, this isn't just saying like he behaves as a father. It's saying he is a father. It means that he is all the perfect things a loving father should be. He is those things. He doesn't, he doesn't try his best to be like, like I do and all the other fathers in the room. We try our best to be that, but God is that, right? And it's also profound because God being father means that God gives life. That's what a father does alongside a mother. They give life, right? Um, And I say alongside a mother because when God created man and woman, 
Male and female, he created them in his image. Male and female together in their life-giving reflect the image of God, right? And the God, the Father, shows us that he's this personal God that gives love as a loving father should and gives life. All things, all things that are life come from the Father. All things that are good and full of life come from the Father. And it's been that way from eternity past. Not just when he started creating, because he has always given love and life to the other persons of the Trinity. He's, he's always been a loving father for the Son. He's always been a loving father with the Holy Spirit. He, that's who God is. That's part of who he is as God the Father. So, what does this mean for us? Here's your, here's your application for this point. When love and life are lacking, run to the Father. God is a loving Father. And how many of us fathers in the room this morning know that it doesn't matter what our kids do at the end of the day, if they're lacking in life and love, we want them to run to us. Think about one of the most popular parables that Jesus told, the prodigal son. Um, really, like, it should probably be renamed the, the parable of the loving father, right? Because this father has been looking for this son. He's been watching for him, waiting for him, hoping, not knowing if he was going to return, but just hoping, looking for him, and runs to him, doesn't even let him finish his apology, wraps him up, throws him a party. That, Jesus is showing us that's how God is. He wants us to run to him. And not only that, when we're, when we're on our way, he's going to run and meet us. Isn't that beautiful? If you are lacking in life and love, run to the Father this morning. He wants to wrap you up in his arms because he's a loving Father. Since he has always been loving and life-giving, we know that he is the one from whom all these things flow. He is the one we should turn to when we need these things. In 1 John 4, 7 and 8, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not know love, anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And we know that here he's referring to the person of the Father because in the next verse it says, And this is the love of God. And this the love of God was made manifested among us that God sent his only Son. The Father sent his only Son. Which brings us to the, the Son. So let's look at the Son, the grace of the Son. For the Father to have eternally given love, to have always been loving, there must have been a person to love, like we were talking about earlier. Um, a monotheistic God without multiple persons is incapable of love without creating. And at that point, that would make God dependent on his creation for an essential thing of what we believe is important, right? God being dependent on his creation to be able to love would kind of make him less than God, right? So, the Father must have been loving someone from eternity past, and we know that this is the Son. We know because of the doctrine of the Trinity that God the Father has eternally shown love to the Son, who, in turn, gives love back to the Father. In John 17, we read that he's been loving him from eternity, and even later in that chapter, um, he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. There's been a, a loving relationship between the person of the father and the person of the son for forever before the foundation of the world. So we see here that the Son is the object of the love of the Father before, since before creation. And not only is he the object of the love of the Father, he is the way that we know the love of the Father. In John 1, we see that in the beginning, Christ was there with God, working in creation with him. It says that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The beginning being the beginning of our, our world, our universe. And so, 
later in the chapter, in, in John 1, it says, The Word that was there with God at the beginning, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We know the Father through the Son, and the Father shows us his love and grace through the Son. And that brings us to a third main point, which is God is a gracious, self-giving Son. That's who God is. God is a loving Father, and God is a gracious, self-giving Son. The grace of the Son is that God himself would condescend to us in his love in order to reconcile us back to him. The the Son shows the lengths of love that our God has, that he would completely give himself to us so that we could know him. And he's been doing this eternally. In John 17, 24, we just read, he said said that you've loved me since before the world's foundation. This has been his plan for forever. They've They've known this. They've known this would, was going to have to happen. And it brings us to this. Why, if, this if God had this, why, why did he create us? He's had love, like, right? Of course, a person that's one being and one person would need to create to have something to love. But why does our God create? Why did our God create that's had love eternally? It's not because he needed us. It's because he wanted to share the great love that exists within the persons of the Trinity. He wanted to share that with us. This is our application for this point. It's related to the last one, but goes a little bit further. You are never so far gone that the grace and love of Jesus cannot reach you. Think about it. God in his infinite knowledge, when he created, he knew that we were going to mess it all up. And he did it anyways. And he didn't just leave us out to dry when it happened. He came to us. The links that he will go to bring us back to knowing him And being found in his love is infinite. It's greater than the east is from the west, Scripture says, his his love for us. How far he's thrown our sins away when we come to him. You know, hint, there's not really a far enough way from the east to the west because we live on a globe. So at some point you're going one way or the other. (laughs) That's why that's so significant further from the east is from the west. Well, that's just like infinite, right? God will go to every length to bring you back to him. And he showed us that in the son who in his grace gave himself for us. Which brings us to the question, how can we access this love and grace? Back to John 16, where we started It says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own, but he will speak whatever he hears. He will also declare to you what is to come. He will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. Everything the father has is mine. That is why I told you that he takes from what is mine and will declare it to you. What is he saying here? He's saying that when we receive the Holy Spirit, We'll have and share in what he has with the Father. He's not just like declaring it to us doesn't just mean like he's like telling us like, hey, this is how it is. He's like declaring it in the sense of like, this is yours now. It's a declaration. You're part of this now. So let's look at that third person of the, the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. Let's talk about the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is probably, I think it's uh, Francis Chan has a book called Forgotten God about the Holy Spirit, uh, which I think is an appropriate title because I do think that we often, we talk so much about the Father and the Son, and uh, I think a lot of times we do forget about the Holy Spirit. 
Um, and and it's it's a weird thing to to relate to the spirit and to think about the spirit. Um, it's not how we typically think about a person, right? But he is. He is a person. Uh, he's not some energy and force. That's not who the Holy Spirit is. The Holy Spirit is a person just as much as the Father and the Son are people of the Trinity. But what is the significance of the Spirit in the Trinity if you already have this eternal love between the Father and the Son? What's the significance of the Spirit? Where does Where does he come in? I think we see a, a good indication of this in Matthew 3 when Jesus is baptized. Um, Jesus is baptized, and it's, it tells us that we see the Spirit descending upon him like a dove. And it may seem strange, but it's actually a really beautiful picture showing us something about who the Spirit is. In this passage, the Father declares his love for and his delight in his Son, but he does so as the Spirit rests on the Son. And what we see in this is that the way the Father shows his love is through the person of the Spirit. This is seen again in how the Father shows his love to us. In Romans 5, 5, it says, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit is the person through whom whom love happens, like love takes action, right? And you do, you do need a person to take love into action, right? It's not just some energy and force that kind of flows from one person to another. It takes action, right? Um, you know, John Mayer would say, love ain't a thing. Love is a verb, right? So uh, I don't know how many people actually like John Mayer that would think that was funny. But, um, but he does say that in one of his songs. Um, <laughs> uh, love is a, this brings us to our fourth main point and our final main point God is a perfectly communing Holy Spirit God is a loving father God is a gracious self-giving son and God is a perfectly communing Holy Spirit the Spirit stirs up the love of the Father for the Son and the love of the Son for the Father, creating a beautiful fellowship between the three. And then the Father gives us the Spirit through the work of the Son so that our affections can be stirred up for Him and for others also. That's what the Holy Spirit does. Um, St. Augustine makes this point in his book, Confessions. He says, At one time we were moved to do what is good after our heart conceived through your Spirit. But at an earlier time, we were moved to do wrong and forsake you. But you, God, one and good, have never ceased to do good. We hope to rest in your great sanctification. But you, the good, with a capital G, in need of no other good, are ever at rest since you yourself are your own rest. What is he saying here? He's saying that at one time, we used to be inclined to do what was wrong and to oppose God and to push against that ultimate reality that is love. But, he says, through your spirit, now we are moved to do what is good. Just as you have been doing for eternity. We hope to have that that rest in your sanctification as you have had rest for eternity. And, And so, I want to make this clear. This does not make the spirit an impersonal force that stirs up affections. It's not some weird kind of like mystical, weird force that like stirs up love and emotions in us. That's not what the Spirit is. He is just as much a person as the Father and Son. When we read Scripture and we read about what the Holy Spirit does, we see a lot of action words that a person does. The Holy Spirit speaks. The Holy Spirit chooses. The Holy Spirit gives. The Holy Spirit can be grieved or blasphemed. The Holy Spirit even teaches us. The Holy Spirit teaches us and guides us. He endows us with spiritual gifts that we use to love God and others. The Holy Spirit is a person. He takes action. He does things. He is the third person of the Trinity. Not just some weird mystical force, right? I think that's important in our day and age to make clear he is a person. We don't say it about the Holy Spirit. We say he. He's a person. Essentially, the Spirit is the person who works to build a loving and knowing 
between the members of the Godhead and between creation and God. The Father and the Son were there at creation, but we also see the Spirit there. We see the Father willing what is to be made, and uh, he speaks, and that speaking is the Word, right? The Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's the Son, the Logos, the Son. What John was saying was, that's Jesus. That's the Son there with God. He is the Word that makes life happen as the Father wills it and brings it into existence. And then we see a weird phrase, that the Spirit is there hovering over the waters. What is that? What does that mean, right? I think that's a verse that you kind of read in Genesis 1 whenever you start in January with your Bible reading plan that you may or may not finish. That's a verse that we're like, and the Spirit was hovering over the waters, like whatever that means, and you just keep going. Think about it like this. Think about a mother bird hovering over her nest. She's hovering over her eggs and her babies after they've hatched. She hovers there over them. And what she's doing is she's creating an environment of safety and care and love where life can happen, right? She's stirring up, you know, the things. She's creating an environment there in that nest where love and life can happen. The Spirit was there hovering over the creation when it was yet unformed, creating an environment for love and life to happen. And when we, when Jesus says, you know, there's someone greater than me coming, like, like he meant it because he is, Jesus to come to us is, is a humble, the son is very humble. And when he says there's someone greater than me coming, he meant it. It's like us talking about our friends, building our friends up, you know, like, no, he, dude, you're totally better than me. Like, We do that, right? And Jesus is kind of doing that. Like, there's somebody better coming. It's the Spirit. And when he comes and lives in you, he's going to create an environment in you where love and life can burst forth into this world. So, this is our application for this point. When you feel disconnected from love and life, The Spirit desires to stir up your affections again. That's what what he longs to do. That's like who he is, right? That's who the Spirit is. He wants to stir up your affections again. And I think so many times we just think like, I just have to wait for it to happen, right? It's just a phase. I just have to wait for it to happen. But are we seeking the Spirit? Are we saying, Holy Spirit, stir my affections up again. Give me the fire that I once had. I feel so disconnected from life. I feel so without meaning and purpose. And the Spirit's there wanting to just hover over our life and stir up in us again an environment where love and life can burst forth. God has made us his temple. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19, it says we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. He dwells in us so that we never have to feel far from him and from love and life again. So, God is a loving father. God is a gracious, self-giving son. And God is a perfectly communing Holy Spirit. So, we see sort of, and here's the thing, like, this is just touching the surface, right? <laughs> if you you read scripture, you dig into this stuff, it's just full. It's so full and rich of so much more than this. We're just touching the surface this morning to get, you know, we're just jumping off the diving board into what's what's out there about who God is and what it means for us. But I do want us to look this morning at how does this relate to us as a church? This is, in fact, a series called Pillars of the Local Church. It's not just about what God does for you individually, but what he does for his church, his people. We know that the Holy Spirit is important for the church because in the Great Commission, Jesus said to go baptizing people in the name of the whole, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And what this tells us is, Everyone needs our Trinitarian God. 
This is, this is, we're going to have a few applications for the church. So, uh, I think those are up, up there, but the, the first one is everyone needs our Trinitarian God. We don't just need God. We need all three persons of, of the Godhead. We need the love of the Father. We need the grace of the Son. We need the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. And guess what? Everyone else does too. Without the Father, we wouldn't know. We would not have life. We wouldn't know what love is. That's what Scripture tells us. How many people are out there that don't are disconnected from life and don't know what love truly is because they're not connected to the Father? Without the Son, we would never know the Father and we wouldn't understand the grace and self-giving humility of God. Without the Spirit, our affections and delight would never be turned to God, and we would be disconnected from the ultimate reality of our universe, which is love. There are people all around us that need this. And so the question that comes with this application this morning is, do you know God? If not, remember, he's, he wants to run to you as you come to him. He came to earth so that you can know him. He does, the Spirit desires to stir up your affections for him and for others. If you don't know God this morning, come talk to me in the back or come talk to Matthew or Lagan uh, after worship. Talk to somebody. Another application uh, for the church is that the Trinity is an example of a community for us to model to the world as the church. We display the love of the Father, and we live through and by the grace of the Son, and we live in the perfect fellowship of the Holy Spirit. What does this mean? It means that we love as the Father loves in the world and in our community. We show grace Just as the Son does, we humble ourselves, and it leads us to forgiving, to understanding, to empathy, and to be gentle with others, just as Christ was. And the fellowship of of the Spirit should cause our community to be desirable to those who see it, right? And then lastly, the last application for us as a church, we should delight in and share the Trinity together declaring it to the world around us. You know, as we come back into worship uh, and we're singing these songs, glorifying the Holy Spirit and the Son and the Father and talking about who He is, um, declaring this out as a church together, there's something really beautiful happening. We're, we're declaring this all out together uh, in, in harmony and melody and the, and the way that a song works, all the rhythms and all the notes together, making this beautiful thing happen, and we all join in together in it. And that there's something really cool happening there where we're displaying the community that exists in the Trinity, right? We're all glorified, giving of our, of our breath and our you know, vocal skills, however bad or good they may be, to declare the glory of someone else. To say, this isn't about me. This isn't about us. This is about him. That's the self-giving love that has existed from eternity. And it happens when we sing. And it happens when we go into our community and love our community. So, this morning, let us delight and the mystery of the Trinity together as we take the love, grace, and fellowship of our God into the world that needs us so desperately. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning. And Son and Spirit, we thank you, God, just for who you are. God, it is so amazing that we know that love is the essence of who you are. It's the essence of the fabric of our universe, God. It's what it's all about. And we just thank you that our God, you are God, display this to us. You don't just have it for yourself and leave us out to dry, but God, you come to us. 
you run to us. You desire to stir up our affections for you and for others. You give yourself. We thank you so much. You didn't need us for love, but you desired so greatly to share that great love that you have within the three persons that you created our universe. And even when we messed it all up, you came so that we could still know you. We, Father, we pray this morning that that truth would transform not just the way we think, God, but the, the way we live in our everyday life. And we just thank you. We love you so much. In Jesus' name.